You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Fantastic Planet. Special Grand Prize, Cannes Film Festival. Fascinating, a fine adventure story. Planet. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Hello. Also with us this week is Mr. Jeffrey Babcock. Hello. This week we are looking at the 1973 film from René Laloux, Fantastic Planet. Also known as La Planète Sauvage, this animated film was based on a book by Stephen Wool called Ohms and Seri, with visuals designed by Roland Topor of the Panic Movement. The film tells the tale of a world where humans exist as pets and pestilence to the drags, the 39-foot-high blue-skinned creatures who um, they seem to just really enjoy meditation. This film is very much a hero's journey of terror, our narrator and a human, or in the film's parlance, an ohm, and how he liberates his fellow ohms. So we're going to be getting to some spoilers here on this episode. If you haven't seen Fantastic Planet, you're going to want to check it out before listening to the rest of the episode. Go ahead, turn us off. We'll still be here. Now, Vincenzo, when was the first time you saw Fantastic Planet, and what did you think? Well, I remember the first time I encountered an image from Fantastic Planet, and that was significant to me because it was in an issue of the very first copy of Famous Monsters that I ever got. And I was probably five, four or five years old. And there was an, I I recall distinctly, there was an image of one of the drags on the ground with those harpoon type things in his face. And there was another image of the ohms with those dueling creatures tied to their bodies. And it was very potent to me at the time. I really wanted to see that movie, although I had no comprehension of what it was or, or how I would see it. And then a number of years later, and I'm just guessing, but I was probably 10 or 11, and lo and behold, it was uh, on television here in Canada, in Toronto. There's a um, 
was a very uh, progressive television station called City TV, and they would play movies like Phantom of the Paradise and Barbarella and pretty interesting, heady stuff, uncensored. And Fantastic Planet was one of those movies. And, and I remember just being really swept away by it. I always loved animation, and I hadn't seen it, nor have I really ever seen since any animated film that looked like Fantastic Planet. It, it just made a, a really big impression on me at, a, at quite a young age. And, and then it's one of those movies that I keep coming back to for whatever reason. I guess in the 90s, they released the soundtrack, and I started listening to the soundtrack quite a bit. It, it just has a... This is one of those films that actually uh, survives really well over the years and seems to have, you know, you can pull different things from it based on whatever time period you happen to be experiencing it in. <laughs> like, we're not, at this particular moment, I'm, I'm drawing certain parallels uh, to our post-Trump world. Equally, I'm sure, you know, you could have, I, or I did do the same thing when I was a teenager. And, uh, so, yeah, so that was, sorry, that's my very long-winded answer, but that, that is how I first experienced it. I'm shocked when you say that city TV isn't a thing anymore. Well, it's part of the Trumpization of the world. It's it was a city TV was a for anyone who doesn't know was a privately owned television station that was quite influential and was started by a guy named Moses Snymer and infamously showed. I, I've never. I think it was before my time, but infamously showed softcore <laughs> porn films late at night. But but that's that was not really why it's well known. Moses Snymer really pioneered certain techniques in television broadcasting, particularly related to arts programming and to bringing audience participation and the public into the television making process. At a certain point, I think he just sold the station, and now it's part of a much larger conglomerate it, it, it literally is next door to where i am right now in my office uh the building's still there and a lot of the same people work there but it's it's under ownership of a, a much more corporate entity and, and as a result not nearly as interesting as it once had been but for me growing up you know i the first time i saw taxi driver was on city tv and it was just a i don't think i appreciated it for this for what it was at the time but it was a real window into all kinds of culture and I, they had a, a magnificent program called the new music and they had a the first fashion television show called Fashion Television. It was a real window into culture. I, I learned and took a lot from that TV station. How about you, Jeffrey? When was the first time you saw it, and what did you think? First time I saw it was in 1974. So it was pretty, pretty just off the the belt compared about that at point in time. And I saw it at the University of Wisconsin Madison, you know, because back then in the 1970s, it really impressed me. There was like these students that would just like love a lot of European cinema, but also like things like The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola and Weekend, and I mean, just like lots of different kinds of things. And Deep Throat, of course. So they were taking all these films that weren't being shown in the normal, so-called normal cinemas, the commercial cinemas. And just like renting a 16 millimeter movie projector, taking a lecture hall. Maybe they're doing it in universities still these days. I'm not sure. But in any case, you know, these guys really cared about culture and it really made a big impression on me. And, and so I saw it there for the very first time. And, but, you know, when I'm thinking back and I'm looking at it now, I think, well, you know, that was the, uh, obviously the Roger Corman dub version, you know, is what I saw back then in 1974. And I was kind of thought it was, a little bit weird, you know, because it was kind of like, in a way, how they're 
in a way he was kind of like dubbing it as if it was for children in, in some places in the film, like these kind of, these kind of t tiny voices and so forth. And at the same time, the, the imagery was so erotic. So I thought it was kind of a weird mix. I remember that mix very, very, very well. I'm glad you brought up the word erotic because I remember when I saw this the first time, I was just like, wow, there's something really kind of weird about this movie. And they're showing all these breasts all over the place. Cause I probably saw it when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 as well. So it was just like in that zone where you're just like, you know, seeking out pictures of boobies whenever you possibly can. It was just like, Oh wow, there's, there's boobies galore in this. There's blue ones and there's white ones. This is kind of <laughs> nuts. But yeah, it was just, it was one of those weird films that you would catch late at night. I seem to remember probably not my initial time seeing it, but probably uh, a, a time or two later seeing it. It seemed like it was one of those movies, maybe it was like late night on the movie channel or night flight or one of those, but it really felt like a great midnight movie and watching it after dark kind of thing because it just had those moments of surreality to it that would just kind of sneak up on you because you could say it's a very straightforward story. You could say that it follows the hero's journey fairly well. As I'm watching it again recently, I'm just like, okay, I see a lot of elements that are similar to Battlefield Earth, you know, with the learning device. I see a lot of things that are similar to Dune, you know, with the whole idea of coming into this new tribe and having to battle for a position in the tribe, all these things. And, and they're very central ideas to the the whole idea of the hero's journey and the things that we're going to see in a lot of movies you know you can go through and say well there's elements of star wars there's elements of this there's elements of that and yeah because it just pretty much tells this universal tale but at the same time the way that it's told and the way that it looks and the way that it sounds really elevates it into a different realm for me and those moments where we're not really following the story, where we're just seeing the world that the ohms and the drags are on, those are the moments that really stick with you. I noticed when I was watching some of the extras on the, the recent Criterion release that they are constantly coming back to some of those moments, like the little baby that breaks out of an egg and this creature comes over and starts licking it and the baby's just so excited, you know, being licked by its mother, maybe, or at least it thinks it's its mother, and then the creature eats it. That's like the moment that a lot of people are going to remember when it comes to Fantastic Planet. I totally agree. I mean, I remember being and remain shocked by the violence in it. There's a kind of cruelty, a strain of cruelty that runs through the film, which I think is uh, part of its power. It's and it, you know, all these years later, I still find it shocking. And I'm sure that comes from Roland Tupor. If you know his artwork at all, it's very much of a piece with what he had done in the past. Uh, and it's a particularly European thing that probably comes from the World War II experience. I was very surprised watching those extras to find out that I knew that it was created in Czechoslovakia. Just watching the credits, you know, you can get a lot of Czech names in there and the Czech film export, um, all these kind of things. I had no idea that, that MGM was doing Tom and Jerry in Czechoslovakia at the same time. <laughs> That was a little bit of a shocker, and I was like, oh, wow. So they, was it like the guys next door are working on Tom and Jerry, and these guys are working on Fantastic Planet? Because <laughs> the animation style, there are these beautiful, beautiful drawings that Roland Topora has designed, and then you know other people are animating. And I don't know how you would necessarily describe that animation style, 
It's very simple, but it's very powerful. Czechoslovakia, or the whole Eastern Bloc, has such a rich history of animation, and we can talk about that a little bit more when we're talking about Topor, perhaps. But um, I thought it was, uh, uh, you know, I was looking on the internet, you know, it was like sometimes I was looking for people's descriptions of the animation style of a fantastic planet. And a lot of people say Terry Gilliam. And I think, well, you know, Terry Gilliam is actually influenced by people like Borovchek and Lenitsa, who were like Polish graphic artists who were doing posters back in the 1980s, and then also doing animation films. And that's really actually the source. It's more Polish. It's not, um, it's not anything to do with Monty Python or Terry Gilliam. I really love how, this is rare, how faithful the animation is to Roland Tepore's art. I mean, when you see in that documentary that you sent me, Mike, they show conceptual drawings that Tapor did for the film, and they look exactly like the movie and exactly like the animation. Very often, especially with something that is um, where there's a lot of cross-hatching or there's something that is very illustrative, that kind of line work doesn't translate into an animated movie in any way because certainly with traditional cell animation, you can't retain that kind of uh, cross-hatching quality. But with this film... The stills from the movie are almost identical to Tapor's drawings for the film. I like the way that the movie begins, where we've got the woman who's running and looking over her shoulder. Something's chasing her. At least that's the impression that we're getting. She's running, running, running. She's got this baby in her arms. And then out of nowhere, this giant blue hand comes down and flicks her. And she's running the other direction, running, 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 and another blue hand comes down and flicks her. And it just really sets up the whole idea of this movie so well, of these giant blue creatures and just how fragile human life is and how much they don't care. Everything is such a game to these children. Children are cruel. We all know that. Children are very cruel, whether they mean to be or not. And they really have no consideration for her being a person like all drugs they consider the ohms consider the people to be pets and and more than pets pets like i said at the beginning they're kind of a pestilence because you've got your domesticated ohms and then you've got all the ohms that are running free and just like people who would maybe have a pet rat you've got all the other rats that are down in the subway system or wherever out chewing up your garbage and at the end of the day, all rats are going to look alike, whether they're domesticated or not. So they just, you know, what, what is that? All all cats appear black in the dark. So they're just going to go ahead and try to exterminate all of them when they finally come up with the policy to say, let's take care of the own problem. Yeah, there's a great duality in the film in so much as I think we are the drags. <laughs> Maybe we relate to the ohms because, of course, they're human. But but in fact... We are the drags. Even at, and actually, especially at a really young age, that's I, it was really potent. I think I completely understood that concept that what we're seeing is how humans treat other animals with such cruelty and indifference, and and the dichotomy of wanting to keep them as pets and being kind to them as pets, but then being utterly merciless with them when they're in their natural state in the wild. Yeah, and of course, the irony, of course, is that uh, the ohms look like us, the drugs are behaving like us. And But, you know, everything is, you know, throughout the entire movie, nothing is black and white. It's always kind of like, it's not like good guys are on this side and 
bad guys are on this, that, the other side, because, you know, there's all those scenes like the ohms, you know, like, uh, capturing a bird and kind of like puncturing it and then drinking its blood, you know, there's some pretty heavy imagery going on through this film. And, and so I think that, that yeah, this duality going throughout the film, you're, you're sometimes you're on one side and after you start watching it for a while, someone, at one point you're on some, one side and then you find yourself on the other side a little bit. You recognize the, the domestic situation of the, the drugs. It, that's you know that's us that's how we're living you know and and so i think it's beautiful also beautifully done yeah with terror i mean he is constantly running into not just problems with the drags but problems with the ohms you know he's fighting people of other tribes he's fighting people within his own tribe he has been domesticated by tiva and she creates this collar for him, as most domesticated ohms have, where she can basically pull him back to her whenever he's out of her uh, her line of sight. And something is wrong with the collar, and he will be able to learn from her learning device. There's a short in his collar where when she's holding him and she's got this learning device on her head, he's able to learn at the same time. So the most dangerous kind of ohm is an educated ohm. And there's a, a moment when he finally escapes and goes to this tribe and he takes his learning, her learning machine with him. And the people of the one, uh, of the first tribe that he comes to, some of them are all about learning and, and finding out more about, you know, civilization, culture, all these kind of things, all these ideas that the, the drags have already learned. And then other people are like, no, 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 we can't learn anything. We can't learn drag culture because that will drag our culture down. Which seems very apropos of the world we live in. Yes. Education is a scary thing, I think. <laughs> but also, you know, like I was cafe the other day. I go by somebody and uh, you know, see two people in the cafe. And I see one person with his headset on connected to his laptop. And then I see the other person with the headset on, you know, connected to their iPhone or to their whatever. And so, like, uh, and I was thinking, my God, you know, this is there is a lot of resonances with the, the way that we're, we're, we're living these days. But at the same time, you know, it is about technology, but at the same time, there's this kind of ambiguity going on where is it, I mean, it's also implying drugs, drug experiences, the, the kind of transcendental other world that they're being um, tapping, that they're tapping in. So I think that's also, you know, and we should also maybe a little bit just quickly go into the language a little bit because the planet that they're talking about is planet Egom and planet Egom is the word in French, magic, magi, backwards. And the protagonist, of course, is Terra, which most people, I guess, know that means Earth. And Om is Om. But also the drugs is connected to the word drug in French, which is drugs. So there's also this kind of drug, drug, drug thing going on a little bit throughout the film. It's ambiguous. It's blurred, but it's it's going on. When the biggest thing for the drug seems to be their meditation. That seems to be the one thing. And I guess you could say that it, it would almost, it's very much a drug experience. You know, they, their bodies will change when they're in meditation, when they're meditating together. There's a great scene where their whole body, their heads are, their heads and their torsos are, or their, their lower parts are the same, but their torsos are completely changing while they're experiencing this meditation together. And it is so much about, allowing the drugs the time and the freedom to 
meditate and eventually we kind of find out their secret is when they're meditating they go off into these little bubbles and they actually travel to another planet to the fantastic planet or the wild planet as they translate it in some uh, versions of it and that's where they procreate And, and that was the scene that really kind of blew my mind when i was a kid was these bubbles of the drags landing on these Basically, they look like human bodies without the heads, and they're dancing around naked together in this wonderful animated sequence where they're all dancing at the exact same time and and spinning around together. And these things are even taller than the drags are. So these things have to be hundreds and hundreds of feet tall, which has to be really scary when you're an ohm and you finally see this and you see what the drags are up to when they're in their deep, deep meditation. Yeah, I mean, that's the only place where the film falls down for me a bit, which is, I mean, it's a beautiful, I love that sequence too. It's so beautifully done, but but it feels like everything gets wrapped up really fast. There was a reason for that, you know, because uh, I, just, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but in any case, I'm just going to say that the animation process took uh, over four years in the, in the Yuri Trunka um, uh, animation studio in Prague. And then 1968 comes and the Russian tanks come in. And so there's about 10 minutes that they had planned to still animate that was never animated. And I think that's why the ending comes up, you know, gets all wrapped up so abruptly. That makes a lot of sense. So do you think it was those scenes were all related to the end? Yeah, I, I assume so, but I'm not sure. Yeah. It feels that way to me, too. Just like it's got this it's got one pace through the entire film. And at the end, it just goes bang, 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 bang. It's over. <laughs> The end. Bye. Yeah. And even the credits feel like they're really short. It's like, whoa, hey, wait. I just spent this very nice, leisurely pace with you. Those those moments when the ohms are crossing the, the landscape, dragging their packages that they've stolen from the drugs. And you see those those kind of weird trees that are slapping at the ground, just again, kind of showing how, how dangerous this planet is. I mean, that's a, a very nice scene of them going and yeah very leisurely and that music is just kind of man that music just gets to me it's just it's so hypnotic i haven't yet experienced it as just the soundtrack without the movie i would be very curious what that experience is to have one without the other i have you know i listened to the soundtrack at least the one that i have which was released a number of years ago and in watching the movie this time I feel like some of the more hypnotic pieces were left off of the soundtrack. I could be wrong, but I felt that some of the more ambient type pieces didn't make it to the commercially released soundtrack, which is too bad, but it's still great. Yeah. This progressive uh, panic rock, jazz, acid funk, space funk, you know, all these wah wahs and these, these synth washes going through it. But, you know, progressive rock, this, you know, that was a big thing going on in, in all throughout the world, but here in Europe and especially in the 1970s. So you had groups like the crop, this crop rock groups like Cannes in, in Germany and in England, you had Pink Floyd. And in France, you had a group called Magma, which, was a, a kind of a band that created its own language and has connections to a fantastic planet um, thematically going through their music. But of course, the Pink Floyd thing is also a connection to Yodorovsky's Dune because Yodorovsky wanted Pink Floyd to do the soundtrack. Well, I think he wanted Magma to do the soundtrack too. I think he wanted, what was it, Magma to be the Harkonnens and Pink Floyd to be the Atreides or something. Which is funny because we were just talking about Yodorovsky's Dune before we started recording. <laughs> And then, of course, Yadorovsky was a member of the Panic Movement. Right. 
I don't think it's any coincidence that the drugs are blue. I think that, uh, at least in the United States, you know, <laughs> hashtag blue lives matter, right? I mean, it just, it seems like they could have easily been stand-ins for they're bigger than we are and they're more powerful than we are. I don't think that it's just the police, but they definitely, they are the government to me a lot of times. And that's one of the things that I really caught on with this latest viewing of it was just how often we see them in these governmental situations. There's so many debates that they have in their type of drug Congress that I, I had forgotten about watching it as a kid because there were very few boobies in that scene. I mean, the most chilling thing about the film definitely is the extermination of the ohms. And there's two extermination scenes, not not even just one, there's two of them, and the second one being even more extreme than the first. And I just, you can't help but think about the Holocaust. There's just, you know, those two seem related. And uh, the drugs are more than just that. You can't say that they're just um, some kind of symbol for authority, but, but there are definitely moments when they take on that mantle. Well, the thing that gets me is that they never seem mean about things they just seem like okay well this is this is a fact we have this problem so we need to take care of this problem though to see those machines that they come up with to take care of the own problem those are just really intense i was reminded almost of that big uh, kind of lawnmower that they had in caligula some of those things where it's the ball that's rolling and picking up the ohms as it's going along or the vacuum cleaner thing that that is sucking them up i'm just like this is terrible There's all this all these machinations for death are really scary i think that film inspired me a little bit when i was many many years ago when i was doing cube i remember there's that one um the first trap that you see, which is a is a cube, actually, come to think of it, <laughs> it's a box, and there's this uh, ohm hitting it. He's laughing, and then Tara says, "Don't do that. It's a trap." And the guy doesn't listen to him, and then, of course he's sucked into it. Not only is he sucked into it, but then the thing buries itself in the ground. It's it is really chilling. And also, I mean, there is this definite connection with the gassing of the ohms, with uh, the Holocaust and the concentration camps. But there's also this kind of thing going on a little bit at the same time of, uh, I mean, in, historically, with what was, you know, France was going through, what Europe was going through in the early 1970s, because that's the point in time when we start having terrorism for the first time, you know, and we had people like uh, Carlos the Jackal, you know, um, and, you know, the, the, uh, in that, in that scenario, in that way of looking, at the ohms are the like this you know the oppressed and you know they end up killing a drug you know and stealing they're stealing supplies from the drugs and so in a way they're kind of like terrorists but they're also kind kind of like freedom fighters you know there's always that dichotomy where like what side are you on you call it one or the other um and the algerian war was going had you know gone past and that was still fresh in people's minds and they were used i mean in a way you know the the, the ohms are using violence back again to try to gain some kind of negotiating power in, in some kind of way that eventually comes. And, and there's also this whole thing about, in for, for me, about there's, you know, this whole crisis about immigration. You know, as you have it in the United States now with the, with the wall or the electronic fence, you know, with the South. But it would be, of course, it's happening here in Europe, but it's been happening here for also such a long time. You know, back in the 1960s, the Turkish and Moroccan immigrants were invited, you know, these people were invited to come over here and work. And the great writer Max Frisch said, what we wanted was workers 
what we got were human beings, you know, and suddenly had to take, had to deal with these people as real people. Um, and they stayed, you know, these people stayed. They started having families and they started having more children, you know, supposedly. That's what people, than the, the normal European population. And there's also that issue going on in the movie too, about that the, the ohms are populating at a faster rate because their lifespan is shorter than that of the drugs. And so, so anyway, this kind of like expanding, you know, feeling of threat that was, that, and so, uh, and you know, this, this, I think this is all very relevant at the same time. In, in historically into the film feeding into the film remind me how the 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 movie ends doesn't it end with the ohms having their own type of pets <laughs> no <laughs> no okay i don't think so no no i think it ends with them getting although this is sort of explained rather than shown that they they get their own artificial planet where they can go and live peacefully apart from the drugs i think if uh, i'm remembering correctly oh yeah no it's the Drogs get a new pet. That's what it is. We get to see Tiwa or one of the the drogs with a new pet that looks like a like a lizard or something. And I guess in that case, it's okay because they don't look like us. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's the sequel where where the lizards rise up. One of the things that I also love about the movie is that it is of a very particular kind of European science fiction that uh, you don't see so much. In movies, but you definitely see in European and particularly French comic books, um, it's just a particular brand, and that's hard for me to define really, but a particular brand of science fiction which feels heavily influenced by surrealism. And of course, it's being European, the quality of the artists who do that work is, I think, much higher than their American counterparts. Um, and they are, and it's a, and it's a kind of science fiction that's definitely aimed at an older audience. Which, you know, it deals with all the kinds of things that you're talking about, Jeffrey, that are, you know, such powerful, relevant and potent themes. I don't know enough about it, but I, I can imagine that the Fantastic Planet comes a little bit out of that. I don't want to, I should call it a movement, but I'm sure it also inspired a lot of artists because it would have been, when I think about, you know, Metal or Lawn, people like Moebius and so on, I imagine that their work probably is concurrent or slightly after the fantastic planet at least their you know more mature work i was really glad you brought up the cross hatching on the art because that was the one thing that really stood out for me when i was watching this is just how gorgeous every frame of this movie is especially those close-ups of the alms and the drags and just to see the amount of detail that has gone into each one of these drawings it doesn't look like any other animated film that i've seen yeah, there's a real feeling of craftsmanship going on, you know, and and in a way, the the uh, the the animation process was similar to like even the first South Park, you know, this kind of very rough kind of. It's not very, it's not Pixar stuff going on here, you know. This is this is kind of awkward, kind of, but at the same time, poetic, kind of poetically awkward, very beautifully well done. And of course, soft um, um, South Park. Once they started, they just did the first test episode or something like that in this kind of very material kind of hands-on way, and then after. That they developed software, and ever ever since it's just been software that's been doing the animation. But in Fantastic uh, Planet, um, what a beautiful, what a beautiful, what a beautiful vision going on in that film. And it's so, like you say, Topor's drawings, amazing, haunting stuff. It is kind of a relief after seeing a lot of Pixar type animation, which of course is beautiful, yeah. I mean, beautiful in its own way. But I I have a five year old son, so I'm exposed to a lot of this stuff. And there's just something, it's kind of a, it's actually a relief 
to look at a, a hand-drawn image and something that feels so illustrative. I mean, even cell animation has a slickness to it. But this, the Fantastic Planet really celebrates the fact that these are drawings. They're not pretending to be anything else. They, in fact, there's an effort to show the handmade quality and the imperfections. And I know there's a scene where in the... Um, whatever you would call it, the Senate chamber where there's that big cube and there's a, a, a video screen and they're showing images of what remained of the original Terra of Earth, which is clearly post-apocalyptic. And the drawings are really rough. I mean, they're, they're just like, they're, and they're intended to be, obviously, they're intended to be just like sketches, but beautiful. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's so refreshing to see that, especially in a time where, you know, hand-drawn animation is kind of, certainly in the West, is really not done any longer. I had to sit through Secret Life of Pets a few times this week. So to compare that <laughs> with Fantastic Planet, it's like, give me Fantastic Planet any time. At least the violence for me is is less disturbing in Fantastic Planet. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot. Well, it just it seemed like it was there for a purpose and for a lesson rather than just seeing a, a poodle beating up a cat. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't need this. We should say something about the director of the movie, maybe Rene Lelou. I don't know how much you uh, would like to know about Lelou, but but I'll just say that just put it this way. I'll just say a couple of things. One, you know, one thing is that Lelou grew up in the countryside in France, and as a child, like right before World War II broke out, he's watching anime, you know, like French dubbed animation cartoon, cartoons, basically animation films. And then, you know, this is developing, a, you know, like a, um, uh, an influence on his brain already. Of course, like like people say that, you know, uh, you know, up between the ages of you know zero and seven. Seven years old, your mind is like wet cement, you know, and so he's being impressed by animation a lot. This is what's going to influence him. And then World War II breaks out. Then the occupation of France by the Germans comes in. And then there's the liberation of France directly afterwards. And all this is that for me, this course of events. One is that, you know, he's deeply influenced by uh, animation. Second, being occupied by a foreign power. And then three, the battle for liberation, which had a big influence on a lot of his, uh, the films that he was working on, and especially on uh, Planet Sauvage. Um, and his father was part of the resistance, so that's also coming into the movie, maybe in some kind of some kind of way. And to just jump to the uh, Labor Clinic in 1956, He's working at the famous Labor Clinic in the Lower Valley. And this is, you know, really a, um, a radical place. You know, there's like, before this point in time, mental clinics for, you know, so-called mental patients are like prisons. You know, they're treated like prisoners. They're worse than prisoners. You know, they have no rights whatsoever. Really disgusting situations. We're talking about after the war, World War II, people started feeling like we have to have a sense of humanity again. You know, we have to start treating each other like human beings and not like disposable uh, things that are just in the way. So basically, um, the, the, the labor clinic was uh, set up and, you know, they had the doors open, mental patients can come out, stroll in the gardens, you know, and they're saying, like, basically, these people are damaged people, and this is the way you're going to help people. This is the way you're going to heal people. And at Labor Clinic, we have, you know, we have two people. We have Felix Guattari, who, you know, is later working with Deleuze and writing books like Anti-Oedipus. Uh, and we have, you know, Rene Leloup. And Lalou's inside this mental clinic and basically thinks, well, I want to work creatively with a mental patient. So he's working a lot with the mental patients 
And he's going to be doing this kind of shadow theater with the mental patients. I mean, this is, once again, this is a kind of therapy. Create, uh, uh, creativity is therapy. And so they start, well, okay, this is going really well. They just start, you know, decide to start making films. And so the very first films that, uh, Rene Laloux were made were with the mental patients. And also that's, you're talking about rough style, man. Those are really fucking rough, you know, like he did a movie called The Monkey's Teeth, which you can probably find online. That's around a little bit, but also a movie called TikTok, you know. And so, and, and you know, TikTok was made in 16 millimeter black and white and already with Monkey's Teeth, 35 millimeter color, you know, but with mental patients, you know. So I think that's kind of important to, uh, to talk about, to, to understand one where talking about this movie a little bit also and wasn't he was a very unique filmmaker in france because nobody was really making animated films at that time that's right yeah which is strange you know because graphic novels are so popular you know in france and throughout europe especially in belgium and in france but then animation films not at all basically that that was just something and maybe i did want to talk about a little is the question of why bon destinée in france is so much more aimed at um, an adult audience. And the same in Japan. Like, those are the two countries that really embrace the comic book form as something for an older audience. Um, but then, concurrent to that, how in both of those countries, although I guess there wasn't nearly as much in France, animation was also an art form that was acceptable for an older audience. Whereas in America, to this day, and I guess television might be an exception, but essentially it's still something just for kids. I, I, it's always been strange to me that with very few exceptions, there aren't any animated films for adults, especially now because actually the films that perform well are animated movies uh, consistently. And and I just keep waiting for somebody <laughs> to make an animated movie for not even an adult audience, but just like an older audience, one that's not, you know, an animated film that isn't necessarily for young children, and it almost never happens. Uh, but it just seems like there's such infinite potential for it, because, of course, an animated film could be anything, more so now than ever. But Fantastic Planet being a wonderful, shining example of how such a thing could exist. And also, you know, I mean, I think that as, as far as the comic books go, it was, you know, the reason why is because in France, they, 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 they value things as an art form. You know, they, they value cinema as an art form. They value the, these, you know, the comic, uh, graphic novels as an art form. There was a sense of respect. And then therefore it kind of went into a different direction, a different place. You know what I mean? And I'm one of those people that think, you know, even science fiction, you know, I mean, it, in this realm, you know, Star Wars did a lot. I mean, Star Wars, you know, I mean, I, for me, you know, for someone like me coming from pre Star Wars and then going through Star Wars and seeing what's happened ever since, Star Wars really, you know, dumbed down the, I mean, for me, it really dumbed down the, the everything. And, and ever since cinema, before Star Wars, you had Midnight Cowboy, you had movies, movies made for adults, even in America. You had, let, let alone Antonioni films or something like that. And, but then after Star Wars, it seemed like there was this kind of, we have, you know, target audience, lowest common denominator, you know, like we have to get as many age groups as possible to come to every film that we're being, we're, we're, that we're making. And so they're kind of like this was move to dumbing down cinema. Um, to the age, to, you know, so that a 13 year old can understand any movie that they're watching. Yeah, no question. 
<laughs> not, not in not in France. <laughs> not in France. And once again, you know, but but you know, Europe has been largely destroyed. You know, I mean, America, Hollywood has such a huge economic power, and they kind of, you know, like in in the seventies, it was so strong, and it's one of the reasons why I came to Europe. You know, I really saw those films. You know, I saw Truffaut films, and I was seeing all these uh, Romer films, and I was watching all these Japanese films, and I just thought, wow, man, cinema can be an art form, and 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 you know, I. I saw it being going the wrong direction totally, and that's why in 1984 I left the United States. One of the, one of the major reasons was cinema, and I came to Europe because it was a place where they re- respected culture. Still, you brought up the whole idea of there not being an animated film aimed at adults, and so much of the complaint when we see really bad special effects is that they look like they're animations; they don't look real. And if we just bit the bullet and actually went that next step and made everything an animation. I'm curious how I would take it. You know, I, I think I might enjoy things a little bit more. If I didn't have a bunch of live actors walking around in a cartoon Peter Cushing or or Carrie Fisher to look at that would throw me out of a, a, a regular movie, maybe I'd be happier if the entire movie was animated and we could do things that you can't do in the physics of real life via animation. I guess Robert Zemeckis kind of did that and somewhat successfully, I would say, although ultimately that came crashing down. I just feel like it, it it's just one of those, you know, I don't want to say innovations, but it just seems like that's an avenue that I'm continually waiting and expecting to open up in mainstream cinema, and it just hasn't yet. I'm just curious as to why. I don't quite understand why there's almost this um, fascistic adherence to a specific style for American animation. You know, once Pixar came in, and again, I I think that, you know, they do wonderful work, but once they came in and created that particular style, everybody had to imitate it. It just seems, you know, with subtle variations, but essentially... That's just all that exists. And and not and it's not just the animation style itself. It's actually the storytelling and the tone and the tone of humor. It's just a, you know, I'm not criticizing those movies unto themselves, but it's just the fact that they're the only option, the only thing that's out there. And I, I'm just curious as to why. I don't know what, you know, other forms, you know, obviously live action movies aren't like that. And um, it's, it's, and it's the same thing in the comic book industry, although then that, you know, that, that had a renaissance um, in the 80s and, and, and changed. But, you know, for many years, of course, in America, comic books were completely the realm of children's literature, or, you know. And then in the 80s, that began to evolve. And, and then people created, I guess, then that's when uh, the, the quote unquote graphic novel was created. So I guess comic books, I mean, that, well, no question, comic books evolved. But I, I just wonder why animation hasn't. You were talking about Pixar kind of feeling like they're the only game in town. And for a while, you could really tell when something wasn't a Pixar film. You know, you would watch like, uh, I don't know, a Shrek or, or, a um, Despicable Me. And you could tell the difference between some of these things. But now as we go on and on and on, I'm just like, this feels like it's just one giant company churning out all this stuff. I can, I'm having a real hard time even discerning what the stylistic differences are between these characters, because it all feels like they live in the same world almost. Yeah. The only exception to that for me is the Ice Age films, which say what you want about them, but I always feel that they're ugly as sin. They just feel like they're 
unrendered <laughs> computer sketches that have yet to really form. So, yeah, but but I won't I won't harp on those films because those are just too easy to pick up. But they're only even those movies are just a few degrees away from from Pixar. They're still you know funny kid oriented movies starring animals, and you know it, it could just be anything. That's what's uh, the irony of it is it, it could be anything because <laughs> it's just a drawing or a, a computer rendering. Uh, so I, I mean I I I guess what it could be is simply that. It's an expensive endeavor. Any animated movie, even the you know the lowest budgeted one, is pretty expensive. So it's it's a high risk endeavor, and you know no one's made an adult animated movie that made a lot of money. And probably when that happens, then everything will change. But sure. but probably there's just not enough people who have had the opportunity to attempt it. I guess maybe Ralph Bakshi is the only American animator I can think of you know, on, who on a commercial level really ever attempted to do something like that with any degree of success. And then, you know, he had a lot of trouble as well. Well, you come from very much a, an art background. I mean, you did tons of storyboards when you were a younger man. Did you ever consider doing an animated film? I've, I've been trying to do an animated film for a long time. Um, and I've run into some of these issues. <laughs> That's what, partly why I'm hmm. asking this question out loud it's what i've been thinking about for a long time uh but yeah i got i mean my first paying job in this business was uh doing storyboards for saturday morning cartoons so i <laughs> i did that for five years so i'm very familiar with that world um and uh and actually well this is an interesting story because i did the company i worked for here in canada is a company called nelvana and nelvana oh wow I had, I had yeah. known from my childhood because they produced all these wonderful um, special, like holiday specials uh, in Canada, which you may or may not have heard of. Things like Cosmic Christmas and The Devil and Daniel Mouse, and uh, they were really kind of a hip company. And they, I haven't seen those things since I was a kid, but they seemed, especially at that time when there wasn't a lot of and really sophisticated animation out there, it was kind of a low low ebb for animation um even disney wasn't doing particularly great work their stuff was of a very high quality and um and ultimately in the sort of infamous tax shelter years in canada where anybody could be an investor and i think my grandmother was an investor <laughs> uh uh they made a movie called rock and rule which is a fairly adult animated film um i mean you look at it now it seems really way ahead of its time because it has a whole cyberpunk quality to it and it was made in the late 70s it might not have been released until the 80s but um anyway so they were an interesting company they made that movie and that film was such a disaster that the only thing that could that's the thing that saved them from going bankrupt was the care bears <laughs> and so from that day onward they were they had tremendous success, but were sort of trapped doing kitty animation for Saturday morning cartoons. And uh, they had tremendous financial success, but I feel like the, the original owners of the company always felt like their greatest work was in their early days. It was a real revelation for me to finally see The Devil and Daniel Mouse, because for years I had heard clips of it in a Bauhaus song. 
and never knew what the clips were from. And then when I finally saw Devil and Daniel Mouse, I was like, oh my God, this is where all those 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 lines are coming from with that particular Bauhaus song. So it was really great. And then it took me a while before I realized that it was Nova Animation for the Star Wars Holiday Special and then eventually Droids as well. Right, yes. Yeah, that, that would have predated when I was there. I did get to work on Beetlejuice. Sorry, I'm, I'm really I'm really digressing. That was that was fun. Sorry, I only mentioned that because to me that that sounds like a, a, a typical but sad story in the animation industry, where you know you're a bunch of young, very talented people who had great ambitions, but ultimately the exigencies of the business prevented them from really pursuing their dreams, and they had to end up just you know bending to whatever the corporate model happened to be. Now you're making me curious. Now I want to go out and find what projects the animators who worked on, say, the Smurfs were working on before <laughs> they probably got saddled into doing that every week. I'm sure. I, I was lucky I missed the Care Bears. I came right after the Care Bears. I don't know if I would have survived Care Bears. You would have had a, a big uh, storm cloud on your belly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that I would be able to undo the psychic damage from drawing Care Bears. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more of a discussion after these important messages. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere even holland find the after movie diner podcast on blog talk radio itunes stitcher and aftermoviediner.com now where's that bottle hey you yeah you projection booth listener come real close i've got a secret just for you Valentine's Day doesn't have to be the most annoying celebration of the year now. The wonderful gentlemen of the projection booth have made your Valentine's Day as smooth as satin sheets this year. Simply slide right on over to adamandeve.com where there's over 18,000 adult toys, games, sexy lingerie, and an endless amount of DVDs to please even your naughty tastes. And because you're a projection booth listener, you're going to get 50% off just about any item in the entire store. Plus, you're also going to receive a free romance kit. This romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you both can enjoy. And that's not all. You're even going to receive a free adult DVD to put you both in the mood. Plus, because the projection booth really wanted this Valentine's Day to be completely pain-free, you're even going to get free shipping on your entire order. So come to adamandeve.com, get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code BOOTH at checkout. That's B-O-O-T-H. The projection booth and adamandeve.com, they got your Valentine's Day covered.
Movies. Movies and Music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. We are back, and we are talking about Fantastic Planet. Now, Jeff, you were talking about uh, Rene Lalou, who is the director of the film, and we had talked a little bit about Roland Topor before we uh, did the break here. And they had worked together before. They had done a, a film together called Les Gargot, uh The Snails, which had this – talk about animation style. It was, it was even rougher than – you know. It, it was definitely a step up for Lalou, and it was interesting to see how – they use the still images uh, of of Topor, and then they even did one before that, if memory serves. Was it the um, Dead Time? Did they work on that one together? Uh, kind of an essay film, kind of an anti-war film. Right. And they're using a lot of his illustrations throughout the film. And just, yeah, just a little bit of animation. Then they did a little bit more with Les Gargot, and then finally with Fantastic Planet, it was fully animated. But yeah, those three films, they are just wonderful to watch. And Topor's style, I mean, it's a very distinctive style. Like, as soon as I saw his drawings rewatching uh, this documentary about Topor, as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the same style of the, um, I will go, uh, we'll walk crazy like horse poster of the opening credits of, what was it, Arabal's, uh, Viva la Muerte. So there's so many things where I was just like, it, it just clicked immediately because his style is just so distinct. Yeah, he, I mean, he's, 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 he's a graphic guy, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, he was also a writer. And, and, you know, I think that once again, you know, like even in Topor's, imagery, there's a lot of influence of World War II. I mean, the darkness is coming through. And basically, you know, he grew up basically in Paris as a kid. And then suddenly, it's the same thing that happened with Serge Gainsbourg, the the, the, the musician, the singer, that what happened was like, you're, you're a kid, and then suddenly, and everything seems to be fine. And then suddenly, well, the country's being occupied, but it's hard to understand that as a kid a little bit, you know. But then suddenly, like, you're forced to wear a star on your, and then every Everybody, uh, I mean, because Topo was Jewish and, and Gainsborough was Jewish, and then everybody, you know, all these people that you're having fun with, everybody is greeting you in the street before, don't want to talk to you anymore. Turn your back. Your closest friends 
turn their backs on you, you know, and this kind of, uh, this kind of rejection, this kind of, and, it's, uh, and maybe, but it's also real, you know, we're living in a luxurious time, I think right now, because we don't have to be afraid that somebody is going to betray us. You know, nobody's going to turn us in. We're not in that situation. We might get in that situation soon. I don't know, but we're not in that situation right now. But for someone like Topo as a kid or Serge Gainsbourg, he's very cynical, you know, I mean, it, it creates this kind of, I don't believe in your hype about society as being, you know, such a great place. You know, you're, you're, this is, you know, there's some, and, and I know that in a situation with slightly different, you would all be behaving differently also. And so this is coming in very strong, I think, with Topor, you know, in, in his vision of the world. And then, you know, once again, Topor starts doing illustrations for the first time with, Hard, you know, his magazine, Hardy Kiri, which would end up being Shari Abdo, which would end up being that place, you know, like two years ago where 15 people were killed in that office in Paris. And I should, I mentioned at the top of the show that uh, Topor was one of the founders of the Panic Movement. And if people aren't familiar with the Panic Movement, it was basically a, a kind of a an art movement, kind of a theater movement, and it was based a lot on uh, Artaud and and his theories, but uh, his theor- theater of cruelty and uh, Louis Benuel as well, I believe. But it was. Um, Three names that really should be familiar if they're not already. I, I think pretty much everybody listening to this podcast would know who Alejandro Hodorowski is. But Fernando Arabal, I mean, fortunately, over the last say 10 years he's had a little bit of a renaissance at least his films have become a lot easier to pick up um on dvd i don't think they're out on blu-ray yet and then roland topor who's one of these guys who he's almost too much of a renaissance man for his own good because you might know him in one area but you might not know that he was responsible for so many other things you know i talked about him doing the opening credits for viva la muerte that he did the artwork for Fantastic Planet, that he did so many great posters. He and Peter Fleischman, who I uh, spoke about with the um, uh, Hard to Be a God episode, I, I haven't given Peter Fleischman what he deserves with an episode of The Projection Booth. I'm still trying to contact him, and I'm hoping that uh, I can uh, interview him before he passes, because he had done so many terrific films. He'd done one that in particular that I really like called Dorothea's Rush, uh, Dorothea's Revenge. Of course, Tolbert did the poster for that. He did the poster for, I think, uh, The Weak Spot and uh, quite a few other of uh, Fleischmann's films. And he is another one of those filmmakers that I think needs a little bit more attention. Um, and he also even did the poster for Shuji Teriyama's, um, the, the sequel to the story of O, uh, Fruits of Passion, which if you call it the sequel to the story of O, it's really kind of a, a misnomer. It's not really related, but if you call it Fruits of Passion, it's a little bit better. But, and then even after that, that, some people might know him as just being, um, not just, but being, uh, Renfield in, uh, uh, Herzog's Nasfratu. So he's all over the place. He even makes a cameo in Sweet Movie by, um, Dusha Makaveev. He's like this nexus of, of all these things that we've talked about on this podcast for the last five and a half years. He's been involved in, in so many ways with so many of these filmmakers and artists. And he, he wrote The Tenant, which we're going to cover in October. So, and, We'll definitely be talking a lot more about him and about Polanski, who just like her, um, just like Topor, 
you know, Tobor is a, uh, uh, a Polish Jew uh, living in France, and that ends up being what uh, Polanski does for a long time as well. And uh, also, you know, like, for example, he was also, Topper was also doing a TV series. It was a TV series called Teleshot, made in the 1980s. And he made it with a Belgian guy. And these were, like, very surrealistic, like, news broadcasts, you know, like, uh, there was, the anchors were, like, a cat and an ostrich. And they did interviews <laughs> with things like forks and umbrellas and it, like even the microphone because everything was alive so everything even the microphone is, is alive it's, it's you know it's giving its own opinion uh while they're while they're trying to do all this organize all this chaos that's going on and, on. and the point was that every the whole universe felt alive when you're watching these little shows and they were like um 20 they were five minutes like like regular news you know like we got to tell you this now and then five minutes and they did like 234 of them and they were really <laughs> blasting the television world because they're on TV, but they're blasting the television world and the whole advertising world that was coming in also. And then also, I think you're going to talk about maybe Marquis. Have you seen Marquis? Oh, I love Marquis. I had to watch Marquis a few years ago. I did an article about uh, talking genitalia. And that, of course, <laughs> is one of the stars of the genre. Uh, he made that because he made Teleshot with, uh, and correct my pronunciation, is it Henri Chanot? Well, yeah, it's a difficult, it's a made up name, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, with an X in there. I was, there are two X's. It might be, oh, no. One at the end. Oh, no, maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he uh, created Teleshot with him, and then they worked together on Marquis, which, oh, my gosh, that is a wonderful, wonderful movie. If if people have seen Quills and they enjoy Quills, you really need to see Marquis, which is very much a similar story to what's covered in Quills, but with amazing puppetry and, again, a talking penis. It is just fantastic. Yeah, the Marquis decides talking penis, having philosophical discussions with his penis, which is always hard, of course, by the way. <laughs> Do you mean it's difficult or it's hard? <laughs> and, and when he's, uh, I think he even, uh, like, fucks a wall at one point, so the penis ends up getting all bruised and all this. So, yeah. And everybody's, fantastic film. everybody's an animal, right? He, he's a cocker spaniel, and just green is like a white mare and things like this. At times they go for the easy jokes, you know, making like a certain character a pig or whatever. But other times they are, it is just so well thought out and so clever. It is, it, it, I was blown away when I saw that movie. Yeah. Great. You know, again, he's in, he's working on puppetry. He's working on, you know, the drawings. He's even a, a songwriter. He wrote a lot of songs. So, the, and then, yeah, wrote the book that the tenants based on, he'd written a whole bunch of books, it just uh, such a Renaissance man. So many things that he was involved in. So it's tough to, to throw a stone and not hit a project that he might've been involved in, especially during that, that crucial time of the sixties, seventies and eighties. And also, I think that, you know, uh, if you don't mind, we ju just jump back quick to the, uh, the panic movement. Because I, we didn't, we just kind of went over that one very fast. I'm not sure if, how much you want to go into it. But I mean, of course, it was Topor, Arabal, Yodorovsky, and they're all coming to Paris, you know, and they're all kind of like totally influenced by surrealism. But surrealism had started in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, you know, basically. And by the time they got there, it had become so stiff and so, 
domestic and so pompous and and you know mainstream in a way they were they were really super disappointed and that's why they started the panic movement you know like we need something more wild again you know we need to do these performances like these like this you know four-hour performances and they called it panic because of the greek god pan you know like the god of nature and wild spirits so they tap into that wild energy once again and their story, uh, performances, I think you've maybe seen pictures or things online, I'm not sure, but you know, like Yodorovsky's being whipped, there's animal blood everywhere, there's rock and roll, live rock and roll music going, you know, like pounding away while this is happening, it's four hours long, it's kind of epic, kind of like catharsis type of, um, 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 catharsis type of uh, uh, performances, you know, and once again, you know, Yodorovsky would say, you know, like if you come to my film and you leave the film the same way as you did, as you were before you came into the movie, I have failed. I want to assassinate you. I want you to be a different person <laughs> come out of the movie than beforehand, and the panic performances were like that. And the other thing I just wanted to say quickly about that, because I just described how the panic movement uh, evolved in a way, but in um, the movie Fantastic Planet, what we see is like, uh, you know, the intellectual drugs, you know, they, they have like all the knowledge in some kind of way. And then, you know, they have all the technology and they have philosophy, but they're disconnected from life. They're kind of ethereal. And then you have, you know, the, the, the ohms, of course, which are that wild spirit. And that kind of wild spirit, the ohms kind of spirit, was what the panic movement was trying to, uh, to was about because they're just trying to balance things out. Society had, was too lopsided. It's all in one direction too much. Going in the same direction, we need to open up the doors again. That's what they were doing, and I think. Well, you could always count on Hodorowski for just taking something and shaking it up. But yeah, all three of these guys were right there at the forefront. I was really glad to see Arabal show up in that documentary uh, about um, Topor that was on the Criterion disc. Uh, that was a nice surprise. And of course, those two hanging out, like, what was it, like a stage trap door or something, where it was just like, you could basically see their heads mostly talking. And I was like, this is kind of the perfect framing for these two guys. Vincenzo, what do you, what do you think of Yodorovsky? Uh, uh, oh, I'm a great admirer. I mean, I'm not that knowledgeable. Uh, I've seen all of his movies, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not a, I don't know that much about him. I will say I've started to read his Bond dessinée, his comic books, and they're really extraordinary. I'm, I'm a latecomer. I, I, <laughs> I only read the Incal uh, last year, and then I yeah. started to read some of the follow-ups, which are just really mind-blowing and um that's why I, I just i don't know enough about it but i can only assume that there was some sort of interplay between what these guys were doing and what happened in the world of french comic books i, I i'm really interested in him i don't know enough about him you know back in the ninth well the turn of the century let's say 200 2000 year 2000 not, you know Yodorovsky would be in a little cafe in Paris. It was in, it was in the north of Paris. I can't remember what district anymore. And he'd be in this cafe every Wednesday at four o'clock, you know, and he'd be doing tarot readings for people. And he would do it absolutely free. And this place would pack up in no time. And he would do like the tarot readings for like 20, 20 or 25 people or something like that. Oh my God. And so amazing thing. And I, I went to one of those, uh, events and had my tarot tarot read by Alejandro. (laughs) Wow. That's impressive. 
What did? Yeah. What can you divulge anything? Well, you know, I mean, I can just divulge the. Uh, like he, you know, he asked me to take your, you know, whatever it was, eight cards, twelve cards, I don't know, off the top of the deck and uh, put them on the table and he put them in like a pyramid and then uh, uh, the the and so he's turning them over once one by one, telling me something about it a little bit and then you know I was leaning over to look at the cards as they were being turned over and I was had my elbow on top of the card that was closest to me. You know, which was the, the 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 tip of the the pyramid in a way, and he goes, I think you're trying to block your future. <laughs> so I lift up, I go shit, you know, and then I, he turns it over. It's a death card, of course. You know, it was a little bit like a you know, the cat people or something movie, you know, like from the. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I know you had a show about it, Mike, but I, I loved uh, Yodorowsky's Dune, and he is. I mean, how old was he when he was interviewed? Well into his 80s? He's, he's so magnetic and energetic and brilliant. It, that was, um, he's obviously, in, I mean, and he's still going strong, right? Right, yeah. He's got a new movie that's coming out any time now. I, I uh, gave to the Kickstarter. <laughs> that's impressive. Yeah, he was born in 1929. And he survived 2016. Yeah, you were bringing up the idea of uh, of the uh French comic books, and I do have to say that Lalou worked with uh, Mobius and Kaza for uh, Light Years and uh, Time Masters, so or or uh, Gandahar instead of uh, Light Years because that was like the bolderized version. So yeah, he he definitely stuck with uh, working with some great artists. Those guys are so brilliant, and they've had such an influence. And I I've seen both of those movies. I saw I knew it as Light Years. I saw that in a movie theater when it came out, which was a long time ago. That was 88, I think. Yeah. And I remember being, I actually, to be perfectly honest, I was really disappointed. I'd like to come back to it because I maybe judged it unfairly, but I, I think I was, I was hoping it would be like the fantastic planet and it's a much more traditionally animated movie. Uh, but I didn't know until very recently that all the design was done by Kaza. Who's you know one of these pillars of uh, comic book art. Uh, and then Time Masters, that's what it's called, right? Time Masters? Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a bad VHS copy of that, again, many years ago. So I don't I don't think I gave either of them a fair shake. Now I want to uh, watch them again. And I certainly didn't realize, I knew that Moebius was involved with it. I didn't realize he co-wrote the script to it. Just be aware that Harvey Weinstein had his hands in uh, uh, light years. So definitely don't watch that particular version. Oh, of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> I know he that redubbed guy. it. I don't know what else he did to the movie. You never know with that guy. That's really too bad. I think I think I was very unfair to that movie and and Time Masters I just saw it. You know, I I think I was looking at something that I couldn't even judge because it was, the quality was so poor. Um the copy was so poor. But uh I'd love to revisit them. I, but it does go to show that Fantastic Planet just has this unique look to it. It's just never been repeated or equaled. And it just it's such a pure translation of Tapor's art, whereas, you know, even looking at those other two films, I can I can definitely see the Moebius influence in Time Masters. I can see the Kaza influence, maybe less so in light years, Um, but they feel like approximations of those artists work, whereas Fantastic Planet just looks like Tapor animated it himself, even though he didn't. Yeah, exactly. No, they they really kept with his style so well, as you said. I mean, those sketches, there's even an article I was reading where they had some of his sketches in there. The image of the women with their hair 
tied together that are fighting one another. The, he drew that, and it looked exactly the same in the movie as to what what he had drawn. Just so terrific, and just those those images the, that they could come up with those images of the women with their hair tied together, of the ohms with those strange creatures, those almost like crocodile creatures being strapped to their chest. All of that kind of the that imagery just terrific. The design in it is. I don't think has really been equaled. It's really, I mean, it's beautiful. It's and it and it feels like it, you know, recalls a Jules Verne kind of future vision. But then it doesn't. At the same time, it's sort of it's entirely unique, and uh, it feels a little bit out of time, I would say. And uh, and again, I, as I was watching it earlier this week for the first time in a number of years, it's just as potent. I, I find I find like that gladiator scene with those creatures tied to those guys bodies chilling and and not just because of the design but if you'll recall when tear wins that battle they kill his creature it's so cruel you know the creature saved his life and then instantly it's it's murdered uh it's just a very um so it feels like you know there's just a particularly european sensibility to it because there's just nothing sentimental about it <laughs> it's just like real life it's really it's really nasty and uh it stands the the test of time and then the other thing i would definitely wanted to mention before we leave the film is that um i think the sound design is extraordinary as well i know it's very spare and it's really the music that carries the film but in the moments where there is sound design those sounds are so memorable i still like they're really burned into my mind i uh, the sound the sound those creatures make the the sounds that those crystals make there's just a um there's a beautiful soundscape uh, an oral design to that world that is completely unique as well yeah they're fantastic yeah, i mean the soundtrack is great but then it's just this the sound effects are wonderful man they're just yeah you're right a whole new world a whole world in itself yeah well, and you mentioned the cruelty and, and I just, I guess this will be my final thought on it is those moments that I talked about at the beginning where you see just how cruel the world is that they're on. You know, I talked about the one creature who is like just born and gets eaten. But the one that always gets me as well is that creature that's, it looks like he's living inside of a cage that uh, uh, like a tree cage almost. And he's got this, this hand nose thing out there and birds will land on it. And he just grabs them and shakes them, shakes them, shakes them, then drops them. And you kind of pull back and you see all of the dead <laughs> creatures that were there. And it seems like the only reason why this creature exists is to just murder things that land on it. And again, with the sound design, that kind of crazy cackling that it does at the same time it's just like what the hell am i watching this is it's horrible and wonderful all at the same time you know i I was i couldn't help but think about avatar the james cameron avatar watching the movie because they live in a tree and and that is also pandora's you know an invented world and by the way i i'm not i have a lot of good things to say about avatar um but I have to say, looking in looking at the Fantastic Planet, that world is so much more interesting to me because Avatar feels like, again, beautifully designed. Don't get me wrong; I I could only ever hope to make something that beautiful, but but it does feel like Pan- Pandora is ten degrees away from planet Earth. There's, it's not that exotic, really. I mean, it, it looks like 
you know, the Amazon rainforest with some, there are, probably, there are actually things on Earth that are much more exotic than some things we see on Pandora um, from our earthly perspective or human perspective. Whereas the fantastic planet, I really feel like I'm on another planet and I don't understand how this ecosystem operates. <laughs> I understand certain aspects of it. There are moments where I go, okay, that's rather familiar Earth-like behavior. But then there's that thing in the tree or that cage tree thing thing that you're talking about. And I don't understand how it fits into the ecosystem whatsoever, which I like because I presume, should we ever encounter another planet with life on it, that it will be entirely different from the way our ecosystem operates. And it will be much more bizarre and remote from our assumptions about how life exists, you know, that we could possibly imagine. And, and I feel like Fantastic Planet is sort of opening the door to what another planet might actually be like. I'm certain that when alien life is discovered, that'll look exactly like David Morse. <laughs> <laughs> but also the the pacing of the movie. I mean, in in that sense of like like you're talking about these, uh, there's like pulp passages which are just like imagery without with very little dialogue going on, and suddenly you see a creature like you just described in the cage, and and it has nothing to do with the storyline. Basically, I mean hardly at all. And so you, you have a lot of like non-narrative things happening in the movie also, you know, it just veers off, goes and shows you, you know, landscapes, it shows you things that really aren't really plot driven, you know, and that's also, a, I think a big relief. It's more, that is more European, old style European filmmaking where like Herzog, when he's talking about making Nosferatu, he said, it opens up the movie with these skeletons that he finds in a cave in um, somewhere in Mexico city. And he just puts them in the movie. Like, like has nothing to do the storyline whatsoever they're not going to come back later that's for sure whatsoever and he says it's like it has to be there just for the mood to create atmosphere you know and he calls that in a way herzog calls it like the inner heart that gives the movie an inner heart you know it's not it has nothing to do with the storyline whatsoever it's not story driven it's not story obsessed but it's just opens up the doors and gives you time to think about what you're watching and like thinking to yourself also like how do i fucking relate to this part of the movie that we're entering now more than the story itself that's what captivates me about the movie is is the world that it yeah. it just feels like a doorway into something really alien i mean I, I know there there's a lot of things about it that are very familiar but the the moments where it departs where i remember there's those that sort of landscape of tubes and suddenly the tubes kink and make this crazy sound and and with you know there's no explanation of course i actually that's always the most the hallmark of great science fiction to me is when there's no explanation it's a very difficult thing to do actually to um present another world with minimal exposition for the audience to just sort of posit them in it and then still create something that is relatable and uh, that we can understand and follow, but but without you know miles of expositional dialogue. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was like, he, and he, he introduced me to another friend that we were sitting on the canal, and his friend his friend said like, you know, like I was watching TV the other day with my girlfriend, and and he like somebody came on this into the story. And this, and his, the girlfriend was getting upset. Like, like, who is that person? You know, like, who is that? And like, he's like, I don't know. Just relax. Wait, wait a while and see what happens. You know, people like, well, it has to be like, you have to know what the hell's going on all the time. This is, this is deadly. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ever since we were married, we've lived above our incomes. Because of you, we've lived like millionaires. 
Anything you wanted, we've had. A holiday abroad, a new dress, or taking this house from us, doing it up and furnishing it. Even during the war, you had... Richard, I don't propose in front of my own brother to be made the scapegoat of your idiotic behaviour. There are money difficulties, I know. I'm simply not going to give up everything I love, everything I believe in, all the things I could never do without. Well, that's all very well, but can we afford it? Can we? Somehow, yes. There must be more money. 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 Is that money, Mother? No, Paul, not quite. It's what causes you to have money. Oh. If you're lucky, you have money. That's why it's better to be born lucky than rich. If you're rich, you can always lose your money. But if you're lucky, you'll always get more money. I'm lucky. I can prove it. And I've got money in my money box. Lots of it. And I keep on getting it. So I must be lucky, mustn't I? There must be more money. 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 There must be more That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the Rocking Horse winner. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Vincenzo and Jeffrey. So, Vincenzo, what has been keeping you busy in the Great White North these days, sir? I'm trying to say, just stay warm at the moment, uh, which seems to be taking up a lot of time and energy. But, uh, you know, I have my own fantastic planets that I'm visiting on occasion. And, uh, yes, eventually something will come out into the world. Well, I have to say, I was very excited when I saw your name on one of the uh, Westworld episodes. That was great to see. And then, um, what what else have you been working on lately, or what else can we expect from you? Well, yeah, I've you know I've been doing a lot of television work, which has really um, actually been lovely, and I've been lucky to work on some great projects. And I had a <laughs> a short uh, voyage on the latest version of the latest iteration of Star Trek that's on the works. I'm no longer involved with it. Um, and since departing that I'm for the moment, just exclusively working on my own things, but better, you know, less said the better really, but, um, such an interesting time because, you know, the film industry is sort of collapsing at the same time, the television industry is just exploding. And then there's all these new forms of media that are emerging and it's kind of, an, it, and then, and then of course the whole world is exploding politically. <laughs> so it's actually quite a, it's quite a stimulating time. It's a good time to be working. And how about you, Jeffrey? What's keeping you up late at night? Cinema, basically, in cinemas, you know. I just decided back about 10 years ago that I needed underground cinemas again. We needed underground, you know. kind of fits into the theme of the movie that we're talking tonight, by the way. But, you know, underground cinemas, like, well, there's always been undergrounds throughout history, like uh, whether religious undergrounds or political undergrounds or artistic undergrounds. And, like, today, everything gets absorbed into the mainstream so quickly. I thought, we just have to draw a line in the sand again and just kind of like, okay, this is underground, you know, <laughs> like, and keep its own identity and don't try to get become bigger you know like my cinemas that i'm doing are like basically around 50 people sometimes 60 sometimes a little bit more but i force them to stay that that's that small you know because the, there's this also this kind of automatic idea that the bigger the better you know it's people don't even question it almost you know because well, for whatever reason it's and, and it's an assumption that i think is kind of mistake and so i just want to keep things small keep this kind of feeling of intimacy you know it's not, and it's just not like how, what you know not just watching movies but how movies are being watched you know put a small group of people together a community create a community again 
have people come together in the dark, in special locations, and, you know, dream together. Because that's what a film is like. Can you imagine watching, like, Fantastic Planet with a group of people and just like, what a fucking dream, you know? And, and you're all, you're all together, but you're feeling independent at the same time and processing these movies and these dreams. And I think it's just a, such a beautiful, uh, beautiful situation. And I see it being, you know, like, the modern world pushing people away from that more and more the idea of community more like be by yourself you know you have your before we had radios only and now we have tele then you had televisions and radio now you have computers and and now you have home movie systems at home and like a lot of deadly like everybody retreating into their apartments and there has to be a, a kind of a defensive culture a defensive culture and like creating community. So that's basically what I'm doing. I've written a couple of books this year, but they're both basically sold out. And um, so things are going great. Thank you so much. And by the way, I just want to say to you, Mike, is that, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a real lover of film and I've been listening to so many podcasts and they're so abysmal. I mean, so many of them, you know, like a bunch of guys together cracking jokes, maybe drinking beers. I don't know. That's in my mind, you know, and just like shooting their mouths off about something they'd have no idea about. But your podcast, man, is so much better than anything else that I can find out there. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. And thank you for fighting the good fight and keeping underground cinema still going. What kind of stuff do you show at these? I show everything. I show, um, I, I believe in diversity. And, you know, when I was in America, I studied with uh, David Bordwell, and I studied later with Stan Brackett. So, like, both those kind of, like, narrative cinema and, like, yeah, experimental or poetic cinema is my range, you know. So it can go it can go anywhere from Grindhouse to um, The Killing of America, we were showing last week, and uh, Counting by Jim Collins, kind of interesting. Uh, so, like, Haring County. I mean, it's like, across the board just across the board the more diversity the better fantastic well thank you guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show and over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show uh if things are going well donors get early access to every episode so every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.